Before we begin, I'd just like to say I am so sorry for taking this long to release my episodes. Colin and I have been working really hard on covering the rise of Kyoshi, and so I've been lagging on my episodes, and I want to make it up to you. I'm going to be doing a sticker giveaway, so if you would like free Beyond Bedding podcast stickers, all you have to do is three things, and I'll include the rules in the description below in this episode too. So yeah, all you have to do is three things. The first one is subscribe to our sister podcast, Legend of Portalcast, for your latest episodes of The Rise of Kiyoshi. Subscribe to our new collaboration YouTube channel, Beyond Portalcast. And number three, subscribe to Beyond Portalcast on Instagram. So if you do those three things and send me screenshots of you doing these things, go ahead and message them to me either on Beyond Bending Portalcast Instagram or through our email and I'll go ahead and send you free stickers. If you're in the U.S., you're good. If you're an international listener, just let me know and we'll work out the details on how I can send you the stickers. And this giveaway is going to be indefinite. So if you're listening to this episode five years from now, you'll still be able to participate. But yeah, thank you so much for your patience and without further ado... Warning, the following podcast contains massive spoilers. If you haven't seen Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra yet, and don't mind spoilers, hopefully this podcast will inspire you to watch along with us. Now let's begin. Hello! Welcome to Beyond Bending, a show about a bunch of millennials analyzing an animated kids show, Avatar, The Last Airbender. I'm your host, Marilyn Chonthala, and today's special guest I have... Um, my name is Brian. I'm a film major along with Marilyn. I'm also, uh, I work as a photo editor. Um, I also do a lot of cosplay. Specifically, I do a lot of anime cosplays along with going ahead and doing, like, magic cosplay. So I go to a lot of the magic events, if you've heard of, like, magic fests and stuff. But yeah, that's pretty much my general overview of myself. So yeah, uh, Brian is one of my film buddies. If you're an avid listener, you can see a pattern here. <laughs> uh, Marilyn picked me because I'm really good at ranting about things too. So <laughs> I remember the the question came up of, "Have you watched Avatar?" I'm like, yeah, no, I've watched it. I feel like I've asked everyone on campus, like, "Hey, have you watched Avatar?" <laughs> I remember um, one of the girls had on her computer. She had a, a I think, an Earthbending sticker, and I was like, "Let me guess, you watch Avatar?" And she's like, "Yep." <laughs> Very proudly and very uh, loudly. Dude, the Avatar fan base is so proud. Because I don't know why it's not as mainstream as I wish it was. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. the show deserves to be recognized. When someone tells me that they haven't seen Avatar, my heart breaks for them. Like, <laughs> Oh, I was, I was preparing last night and my roommate came in and was like sitting down watching the episode. And I was like, okay. And talking to my other friend who was here, and I was like, oh, yeah, so, oh, wait, have you seen Avatar? And she was like, nope, this is the first episode I'm watching. I'm like, damn. <laughs> so hopefully I converted her. Hopefully. <laughs> but yeah, uh, let's just jump right into it, because this episode, there's so much to unpack. There's so many reasons why I picked this one, because I'm just like, oh, it just feels, it's, it's just... It's like the type of story I like where we go into the background and everything. And I think this is the first time we really saw like both Aang and Zuko's what their deal is like we're hinted to it during the first part of the whole season and stuff but i think this is where it's like we're hitting on the nose right now we know exactly what's what's happening and oh my gosh this is tears and sadness (laughs) yeah when i was recapping i was like wow for 12 episodes both of them have just put on this facade of who they want to be or who they want others to view them as in this episode, all of those barriers are just finally down and we get to see and look behind the curtain of who they really are and them confronting who they really are and growing from it. And so, yeah, this is like one of the top episodes, definitely. I love the the lighting and everything, too, and just like, it. We'll, we'll go into it, but it's just, it's a pretty episode and I love it. <laughs> the episode we're going to be doing today is episode 12, The Storm. The episode starts with Aang flying on Appa. The camera pans to the right to show Sokka air gliding next to him. The camera pans to the left and we see Katara flying on Momo. 
but Momo is like the size of Appa. And <laughs> this is when this is when everyone watching is like, wait. And then we hear a voiceover of Katara saying, We need you, Aang. And Aang replies back, I need you too. <laughs> but wait, there's a storm coming. Aang tells the gang to be careful, but when he looks around, he sees that they're gone. Monkey Yatsu appears and asks, why did you run away? And Aang replies back that he didn't mean to. As Aang reaches out to touch Monkey Yatsu, Monkey Yatsu turns into smoke and disappears in front of him. As Aang flies into the storm, we hear a voiceover of Monkey Yatsu saying, we need you, Aang. Aang and Appa crash into the water and everyone just starts chanting, we need you, Aang, we need you, Aang, we need you, Aang. And there's a flash of lightning and Aang screams and wakes up. As he wakes up, he freaks out Momo, who was sleeping on his stomach. Momo hops on Katara and Sokka, and they both wake up too. Sokka is like holding his boomerang and a knife. <laughs> Did you notice, Brian, the knife is facing the wrong way? <laughs> oh yeah, no, I, I'm just like, I looked at it and I, I was like, no, this is a great follow-up to Dream Sokka, who apparently can just do things, <laughs> like fly. <laughs> And also, does Sokka always carry his weapons when he's sleeping? He's like the guy that always has a gun underneath his pillow because he's just paranoid like that. You know, I didn't really think about that at first, but you're right. That's that, Oh gosh, Sokka has like, he's got, maybe he does have a little bit of trauma there. Maybe there might be. He might be very paranoid. They're all so traumatized, these poor kids. I mean, you do have to think about that, the age that they're going through. And it's like, I mean, that's a recurring theme with Aang as well. The episode for the long talks about that too. Like, he's so young. He's got this huge weight on his shoulders. And it's just like, okay, um, would any of us handle it any differently? Or would we be better at it? I don't think so. I feel like <laughs> I'd be worse. Yeah. Aang tells the gang that he had a bad dream. Katara asks if he wants to talk about it. And Aang says no. We cut to later that morning. Aang tells Appa that the weather is perfect for flying. Ugh. There are so many times in this episode where someone says something about the weather and it's like, psych, you thought. I just look at it like, please, no one say anything about the weather. Please, no one say anything about that. Just just go do your thing. <laughs> Everything will be fine. Let me tell you about the weather, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Katara tells Sokka that they ran out of food and that they need to pick up more supplies. Sokka starts freaking out and warns the gang that they shouldn't go because he had a bad dream that started out just like this. And in this dream, Momo said a lot of mean things to Sokka. And he's telling Momo this and Momo's just giving him a blank stare. We cut to Zuko's ship. Uncle Iroh tells Zuko that there's a storm coming and Zuko just doesn't give a shit. At one point, he tells Uncle Iroh that the safety of the crew doesn't matter. Right when he says this, the lieutenant walks past him <laughs> and he stares at Prince Zuko like, are you fucking kidding me? And Zuko, instead of feeling guilty like a normal human being, he walks up to the lieutenant, gets in front of his face, and says, finding the avatar is more important than any individual's safety, and walks away. I wanted to mention here that I find it really interesting that the lieutenant never says anything. It's all just told through expressions. They did like physical acting with animated characters and it's so good. It's so wonderful. It's so amazing. Um, but yeah, end of recap. Can we just talk about like the brass of Prince Zuko? So much brass. I don't want to use the term like he has a lot of balls, but holy shit. Well, I like how you put it as, as brass, too, because it's like, it, that's the military way of saying, the, you know, the huevos. And, you no, know, I agree. It's like, oh my gosh, Zuko. What an asshole. <laughs> I, I mean, that's why we love and hate Zuko. Like, we love him for being kind of an asshole. Like, this episode, for sure, up to this point, I may have thought Zuko was just such an ass and such a bad person. Or not, not a bad person, but, you know, just, he's a villain. He's an annoying villain. Why should I have sympathy? Oh my gosh, you're... Your background is, wow, yeah, you're the fully rounded character and there's a reason why you act like such a shithead. Yeah, I wrote it down in my notes, like, because the whole concept of flashback sequences have always annoyed me mm -hmm. in terms of, like, filmmaking because it's probably the easiest filming technique to, like, it's a trope that I never really liked. But obviously, if they do it well, I don't know why, but the whole flashbacks in Avatar does not bug me at all. Well, I think it's, we're taught that flashbacks, you know, in, in film analysis or that in production too, can sometimes just feel like a crutch. 
it's a cheap way to show something that you could have just shown by like starting the story there. Yeah. But with Avatar, I think the nature of the story dictates that we have to use flashbacks to show that past because the story doesn't really begin in that period. It doesn't begin when Aang finds out he's the Avatar. It doesn't begin with Zuko and, you know, everything was his father. It begins when he comes out of the iceberg and he meets all of them. He meets Katara, he meets Sokka, and Zuko. So the flashback is just serving that story. That's the true story that we're seeing. And that's something we go through a lot with Avatars that we, we kind of get that. When we get to the next season and we get to parts with like Toph and everything, maybe if I get to come back or something like that, maybe we can talk about the intro of Toph because I believe we don't have a, we have a flashback there too, but I think mostly we just see her origin pretty much rise. It's happening. Yeah. And I was questioning the show and thinking for 12 episodes, we've watched Zuko do terrible things. And it's like, really? You're going to give us flashbacks? What can you possibly show us to make us like Zuko? And, oh. Oh, what can we show you? It gets pretty bad. <laughs> Does Sokka ever get a flashback kind of thing? Or are we just always told his background? I think his flashback is told by Katara. I think that's the only flashback we get of Sokka is through Katara's flashback where she recounts the day that the Fire Nation came to her village and killed her mom. Like the ash starts falling and I think Sokka, he sees that and then he doesn't know what to do. And then that's when Katara's like, I'm going to go see mom. But yeah, I don't think Sokka ever gets a flashback. Yeah, because I think the only two characters who don't get a, like their own flashback are Sokka and I think Iroh. Because I think Iroh also hints to the stuff and stuff in flashbacks about Iroh hints to what happens to his son and everything, but doesn't actually go into the direct. I could be wrong. It's been a few years. so. And Toph, too, like you said earlier. Yeah, Toph gets the honor of actually kind of having her story unfold in front of us a bit more. Humans in general find the whole concept of dreams incredibly fascinating. And it's crazy how sometimes the dreams that we have define what we do in real life. Like, I've definitely been in Sokka shoes where I would not do something that day because I had a bad dream slash deja vu of, like, whatever it is and I just don't want I have a little bit of a thing about like losing people and stuff. That's very something personal to me. It's a fear I have. And mm. when I sleep, I, thank you. <laughs> I was like, thank you, thank you. Um, but when I had dreams about like maybe I lost someone, or something, I get really paranoid. Like, oh my gosh, I have to like text them and be like, are you okay? Like, yeah, I'm fine. Like, okay, just, just making sure. Yeah, sometimes my mom or my dad would randomly call me and be like, hey, don't go out this weekend. Like, don't go out of town. And I would be like, what? Why? And they would tell me that they had a bad dream of me getting hurt. And I'm just like, okay, I'm not going to mess with that. I'm definitely not going to mess with that. I'm, yeah, I'm going to stay home. <laughs> What's interesting about the, the dream thing, too, is the fact that these are both things kind of in your mind. One thing is the connection of dreams in your mind, which you build up, you kind of relive the past with and stuff. And flashbacks are basically something that we're supposed to think of is in their mind, which is that's the thoughts, that's the past recollecting and stuff. And it's interesting that that's a theme that's connected between the two. Yeah, someone once told me, I forgot who he was, but they told me that I should not fear my nightmares, but appreciate them. Like appreciate that it's a nightmare because that means that my actual life is better than my dreams. And I was like, wow, I never really thought about that. The reason why we fear our nightmares so much is because we fear that it'll come true. And like, I'm just thankful that most of my nightmares don't come true. Yeah, because especially because I have a lot of sleep disorders. So I do regularly get sleep paralysis. But what's hilarious about it is that when I'm laying there and you see all like the demons and stuff like that, because that's, that's normally what happens, like you get images of things. I just look at them and then I've trained my mind now to go like, yeah, do it. Do it, demons. Go ahead. Oh my god. And then it's just like, you just see stills and then all of a sudden I'm just like, oh, I'm awake now. Oh my god. <laughs> it's, it's really hilarious though. That's intense. <laughs> Yeah, I may be a messed up person. Anyways, <laughs> let's talk about Avatar. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> sometimes I get sleep paralysis too, and I, ugh, ugh. <laughs> but not to the extent where I see what you see. That's crazy. It's, I, I've had it since I've been really young, so it's like something I've been able to work through, which is really great. Every time I talk to experiences about that, most people are like, no, no, I, it's hard for me to go through it. And then I'm like, 
I tell them that and they're like, how do you do that? Like, I don't know. I guess just because I'm so conditioned now that I'm just like, my mind's just trained to know this is not real. This can't be real. And if it is, I'm probably just going to die anyway. So what's what's the point? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I get those moments too where I'm dreaming and I feel like everyone's Googled the concept of dreams and how to know when you're dreaming, how to know to wake yourself up. And one of the things I read is like, if you've seen Inception, like the concept of time is um, wonky. Like Mm -hmm. it's crazy how when humans experience the concept of time, it's, it's different. Sometimes 10 seconds can feel forever. Sometimes an hour can go by quickly. So whenever I'm dreaming, I try to find a clock anywhere in my dream. Mm. And when I look at the clock, it's just going haywire because the concept of time is irrelevant in dreams. And so I'm like, yep, I'm dreaming. I just got to wait this out until I wake up. (laughs) I need to do that at some point because I've never, that's really interesting. I've never had, I mean, you know, you can't control yourself completely sometimes when you're dreaming and stuff. But the fact that, like, you can find the clock is really cool. And I, I want to know if I can have Dream Brian go find the clock really quickly and see if it just goes cuckoo. <laughs> as far as I know, I don't think I've ever seen a dream or a clock. I'm, I'm good with numbers. Maybe that's some weird way my mind's tricking me of like, no, you're you're not in a dream. See? Because it's clearly 7066666. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's crazy how in our dreams, we feel the pain. Sometimes I feel physical pain in my dream, definitely emotional pain. And to have like Aang relive this trauma in his dreams. And even Katara noticed like, hey, like you've been having a lot of nightmares recently. And so this is definitely something in Aang that's been kind of spewing for a while. And then finally, everything just comes out in this episode. I like how this episode is just, right now, this is just a therapy session for at least Aang. Zuko, <laughs> not so much. But Aang, we, we get that. Yeah. Did you catch that image of Fire Lord Ozai? Just right before Aang wakes up, when that lightning strikes, there's just like a flash of lightning and also just like a caricature of Fire Lord Ozai in a very like demonic type of image. Yes, um, I did really get to freeze it because it's so it's kind of hard to freeze as you're watching it on like on the streaming and stuff. It was so fast. I had to try like a good 10 times to stop it where it was. It was like less than a second. That's how fast it was. It reminded me of a weird parallel between Aang and the Avatar state. And I think especially when he's trying to unlock his chakras, I remember him specifically having like this image of like this very not detailed energy looking thing, but it looks almost godly. And something about that later on reminds me of this image right now where you see the opposite where Ozai is the the quote-unquote devil of the whole thing. He's the anti-Avatar. So, and I thought that was an interesting thing. Like, is that kind of like a foreshadowing? Is that kind of like a parallel artistically, visually and stuff? That, along with everything else in the episode, is like, oh my gosh, there's so much foreshadowing that I didn't even see the first time I watched it. I'm like, wait, wait. So, but we, we can go into it when we get to those scenes too. Yeah, I like how Podcast Marilyn caught this. We see Aang looking up at the sky. Like, this is when he's telling Appa, like, yeah, we're going to have some smooth flying because, you know, like, uh, the sky looks fine. And he sees the flocks of birds in V formation. And we follow these flocks of birds to Zuko's ship. And Uncle Iroh looks up, too. Then he sniffs the air. And he's like, yep, a storm is coming. (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) I had to Google, like, what are the signs? Like, how do people know that a storm is coming? Before I forget, there's something you point out which is really great. It was That's just awesome transition. Just having the birds in one side and then you see those same birds coming back over near them. That's what this episode has a lot of. It's a lot of great transitions. Like yeah. what we mentioned with Ozai and that image and the lightning and stuff like that. And the lightning gets repeated several times during the episode. And I think there's a lot of symbolism there. I could probably go another hour of like birds flying, how Aang and Zuko might not feel free like a bird or something like that. And they're running from their own storms and all this other stuff. I mean, well, that's also while we're here, so I guess I can still go into it. But the lightning might be a little bit harder to explain. But, um, <laughs> and then the other thing is like, my note isn't, isn't just also about like, how do people know? Well, I mean, it is because... A few seconds later, we're going to get the old woman coming up and be like, the storm's coming and I feel it in my bones. I'm just like, do all these old people, do you hit a certain age and now you can sense weather? Like, is that just a thing? So, I don't know if you're the target audience for this, but have you seen Mean Girls? <laughs> uh, no, 
Actually, yeah, no, I've seen I've seen Mean Girls. I enjoy Silent Life. People enjoy Tina Fey and stuff. So yeah, no, I've seen Mean Girls. <laughs> it reminded me of Amanda Seyfried's character when she's like, my boobs know when it's raining. <laughs> she's just like feeling them constantly. And she's like, oh yeah, it's raining. When she's getting drenched in. <laughs> so stupid. But about the joints thing, I have heard about this where like, especially people that have undergone surgery and have metal inside them, like their metal parts feel a drop in temperature. And so they have that keen sense of of knowing when the weather's changing because like the metal inside them is changing as well. And so it's very creepy. <laughs> That's really interesting. I, I need to ask my dad about that because he's had surgery recently and stuff like in the last few years and you know now he's got metal inside him and it's like, huh, I wonder dad's got this X-Men uh, sensing the weather now. Also, besides flashbacks, another trope I usually don't like is when there's just like a sudden change in wind and the character's like, oh, there's a storm coming. You see that in a lot of movies when shit's about to go down. But yeah, I looked it up. It's a trope for a reason. Like if there's a sudden change in wind, like the weather is changing. And so I was like, oh, fine, I'll let it pass. One thing I like about this is that I notice when um, there are changes or something, there's like a weird, tell me if you experienced this too, but I know like before there's like kind of like an earthquake or before there's like kind of a weird event, um, there's like a weird half second silence. Like there's something that you can kind of feel it and hear it. There's a moment where things get quiet. And I feel like that's somewhere in this episode too. Like when Iris talked about it, when the old one was talking about it, I feel like some of the something in the background noise just kind of goes silent for just a sec. Like it's so light and so hard to pick up. I could be wrong. That could be just me just imagining it a little bit, but I, I feel like it's there and they almost are hinting to that. Like it is coming. The thing's coming. Yeah, no, I've definitely experienced that. I think, I don't know, just, there's just some things that we can't explain. It's a very gut instinctive feeling like uh, Sokka pops out of nowhere like my instincts are telling me. Humans and animals just have this innate sense of knowing when there is a change in weather or like a turning point in our lifetime. I know I had this feeling when Trump got elected just like all of the air got sucked out of my lungs and I didn't know how to feel. I was in Santa Cruz, like I was visiting friends when they announced who won the presidency. I was over at a friend's house and we were just watching like them counting up all of the state's votes. And like it was pretty half and half and Clinton was winning. And then slowly, like just the numbers for Trump kept going up and up. And it was just watching like a slow car crash. And it was horrible. I had to drop my friend back on campus. And so I drove her back and there were just like a bunch of students rallied. And then they started moving. Um, Finally, they just started like uh, marching all around campus. But they were just like, fuck Trump, fuck Trump. And it was so eerie and intense. It felt like the apocalypse. Like there were students carrying like fuck Trump signs. This guy had like a mini projector. I don't know how he did it. He like, I think he cut out like fuck Trump on a cardboard and shined a light through it and he shined it on the Stevenson building and so it's just like this 100 foot billboard that says fuck Trump like I felt like I was going to war and it was it was so intense I don't I don't know how to describe it there's one experience I haven't had which my friend um Nadav had mentioned a while back which was he he lived in Israel when he was a young kid and it was one of the times when they were like having an incident with the Palestinians and stuff. And he remembers being a young kid and gas bombs dropping and his mom just being like, okay, here's a mask. And him just being terrified about that. And that like, that story always resonates with me. And that's how that describes that reminds me of the same thing of what happened with him. And then the other thing for my own like personal story is that um, I was I forget what it is. Is it the Northridge earthquake in like 94 or something like that? But I remember being like a really young kid and I remember like trying to get water and stuff and people just going insane for supplies and just how like it felt really weirdly dystopian at that point. And this is like modern day 90s California. Like you'd think it wouldn't be like that, but it was. It was just 
terrifying, especially when I'm so tiny like that. I'm like, what's going on? What's happening? And I remember my parents just kind of like trying to keep me away and kind of keep me me nice and oblivious to the whole thing. But you still feel it. You still get it, even as like a child. Mm. <laughs> this got really <laughs> intense for an Avatar episode. <laughs> <laughs> We're not even halfway. I mean, to be fair, this is a show that's about war. In the the fisherman mentions is like, are you know the war that's and strife that's happened for one hundred years. Yeah, back to the episode. The gang is at the docks and they're shopping around a fruit stand. Katara is really indecisive about buying this. I don't even know what type of fruit it was. It just looked like a type of melon. After spending forever swishing around the melon and listening to it and giving the merchant lady a hard time, she realizes that she can't even buy it and tells the gang that they ran out of money. Sokka hands the basket of fruit back to the merchant lady and the woman responds by kicking Sokka in the butt as he's walking away because <laughs> she's just so pissed at Katara. Katara was basically like the worst customer ever. And uh, I've been there where some of my friends would put in a lot of effort in trying clothes or being really interested in items that I know they're not going to buy. And so <laughs> and so the employee is, you know, like trying to sell this thing, like hardcore selling. And like, it's so cringy. I can't even be in the same room. Like, I have to walk away. <laughs> I, I'm your friend. I probably do that. I, I, Brian, no. To be fair, I try to avoid the salesperson as I do that. I kind of just like, no, I'm okay. I'm good. I just like wander around for a little bit. I'm like, okay, they're not looking at me. Cool. They did their thing. Now I can go actually examine this thing. Like I try not to trap them in this situation. I've been there. I've done that too. I've like sold things on commission and all the stuff. I, I know how that is. I'm just like, I'm going to be picky a little bit. I'm sorry. And I really am trying, like, please pick up my messages of, you don't want me around because I'm probably not going to buy it, but I'm going to look at it. But what I also do is if I go back to the same store or something like that later, and that person is there, I try to directly go like, could you help me with something? Okay, I'm grabbing this. Did you have any questions? Nope. Here you go. And I try to give them the commission, like, you're nice enough to leave me alone. Here you go. (laughs) Because I know for (laughs) sure that you deserve this and you need this. The gang doesn't know what to do because they have no food and they have no money. They overhear this old man and woman bickering. The old man wants to go fishing and the old woman tells him not to because there's a storm coming. Aang suggests that they should find shelter somewhere and lay low and Sokka's like, what? There's not a cloud in the sky, like relax. The old man says he'll find someone else instead to help him fish and makes like a huge scene and says that he'll pay that person double and right when Sokka hears this, he immediately volunteers. And then later Sokka's like, you're paying me double, right? And the guy's like, wait, what? I never said that. <laughs> it's just like, oh my god. I can agree, although I also won't, won't lie. I can't lie, I love the old man in this episode. Like, he's just great. Like, I almost wish he could have been like some regular character like the cat salesman or something later on just like oh it's the fish guy <laughs> <laughs> did you see his biceps he's so ripped oh my god oh yeah oh yeah no it's, have you seen fishermen have you seen what they have to do oh my yeah. gosh they, they gotta pull some stuff i i would say like fishermen have like huge biceps from like all the stuff they do and then also bakers like when mm. i worked in a bakery i was getting like ripped <laughs> it was oh. not, but the thing is, is you know it's like the skipping leg day thing, nothing else gets ripped. It's mostly just your arms and your back because you're picking that stuff up. Oh. But, like, you still have, like, typically a lot of bakers I know all have, like, huge, giant, like, arms, like Popeye and stuff and really strong backs, but then, like, <laughs> they have huge bellies. <laughs> we cut to Zuko's ship. The lieutenant sees the clouds rolling in and starts rubbing it in Zuko's face about how Uncle Ira was right. Zuko responds by telling the lieutenant to learn some respect or else. Ah, Zuko. (laughs) The lieutenant's like, you teach me respect? He calls Zuko out on treating everyone like shit, even Uncle Iroh, and tells Zuko that he doesn't care about anyone but himself. And Zuko gets pissed. He challenges the lieutenant to a fight, and Uncle Iroh breaks up the fight by telling them that a bowl of noodles will help and everyone will feel better afterwards. <laughs> Two things about the scene. Number one, um, remember how we were mentioning before this one theme of like, you know, toxic masculinity? Yeah. Here it is Fire Nation. 
probably going to get some fans being annoyed with me about that. It's like, not, the Fire Nation does not always associate toxic masculinity, but in this time and age, it does. <laughs> and then also, that's the Iroh thing is so much like me, except I always say, like, let's just have some pie. Let's just have a dessert, because usually I have desserts on hand. It's like, let's have sweet things. <laughs> Everyone's hungry. Grab a Snickers. Calm down. Exactly. The Kelsey's compared me to Lupin in Harry Potter and Prince of Azkaban. It's like, here, have some chocolate. It'll make you feel better. It's like, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Iroh, I relate so much to you. We cut back to the docks. The clouds are rolling in, and Aang tells Sokka to not go. Sokka says that he can't bail on his job, like he literally just told the old man that he would go, and he's not gonna let any bad weather hold him back. The woman backs up Aang and tells the fisherman to listen to the boy with the tattoos, and then the fisherman's light bulb goes off. He's like, wait a minute, you're the avatar, ain't ya? <laughs> Things get really serious because the fisherman calls out Aang for disappearing for a hundred years and he literally gets in Aang's face, pokes his chest, looks him in the eyes and says, you turned your back on the world. Oof. Like my face. If you know what gif I'm talking about, it's like that ooh face. <laughs> I see the Pikachu one. The the Pikachu like, have you seen that one? <laughs> yeah, where it's just like jaw drop like ooh. <laughs> And I had a great note about this one. Is This is also another first, isn't it? This is the first time he's been like... Like, people have mentioned, like, oh, the war, the war. But for the most part, because he's the Avatar, they haven't, like, confronted him about that. They've always... I, I, I believe so. Again, my memory's a little shot, so excuse me if I'm, if I'm not remembering it correctly. But, um, yeah, I think this is the first time he, like, outright is just told, hey, you did this. This is your fault. And I feel bad because I know, like, as a person, like, oh, you shouldn't put on any... Blah, blah, blah. But I can't lie that if you're... If you've seen all the stuff that happened those hundred years and stuff like that, you can't blame the fisherman either. Like, this was his job, and he failed, even though it was a job that he never really wanted. Yeah, this is the first time we definitely see the other side of the coin, because Aang's been, for these past 12 episodes, Aang has been met with praise. If you were promised Jesus every generation, and your Jesus disappears on you, and genocide happens, and this like really horrible war like world war ii happens and the avatar comes back and he's just like pretending like nothing happened like i would be pissed too but yeah so katara defends Aang and says that he wouldn't turn his back on anyone she tells the fisherman that Aang is the bravest person she knows and that it's not his fault he disappeared. <laughs> she turns around and she's like, right Aang? But Aang just starts backing away and oh my god, his face, Brian, it still gets to me whenever I see like his reaction to all of this. He takes off, he just starts airbending away and Katara chases after him on Appa. Like the old man's not wrong, but... <laughs> he, it's It's one of those things about like... It's it's empathy, it's, it's stuff like that. It's like, he's not wrong, he's not right, but he's not wrong. Like, it, it it's yeah. it's one of those things, like, if you're in that situation, like, you can understand some people who go there. That's one of the few things where I try to really work in my life. Like, I know I'm mad at someone about that, or, like, some, okay, not, not about mass genocide, but, you know, like, we were <laughs> angry at someone, but there was a point where I also had to realize, like, did they mean to do this? Could there have been other situations and stuff? I mean, Aang is still relatively young looking, and it was a hundred years. He could kind of think, like, are you sure? Because you mentioned he's not here, but maybe the other Avatar died, and now he's been back. Because he just got born, like, 14 years ago or something like that. Because the way the cycle works. It seems like a lot of people know who the Avatar is, they know who the Jesus character is, but they don't necessarily know how the whole process works with them. And I also think there's just, like, um the whole avatar thing is their religion like can you imagine for thousands of years it's guaranteed like there will always be a jesus walking among you that will mm -hmm. you know make sure that the world doesn't turn to shit and in your generation your avatar slash jesus disappears on you he's pretty old like i'm pretty sure he's experienced most of the war and mm -hmm. all the shit he's seen maybe that's why he's to us he seems really apathetic especially towards the old woman but it's just a reflection of the times and how all of these civilians have to kind of be mentally and emotionally hard to be able to live in this certain state that's a really good point about i didn't even think about the idea that the avatar itself is like the religion of this world because 
you see so many people, I mean, I guess subtextually they probably do go into that, but I never on the surface thought about that for some reason, which I'm a little surprised by. Because um, there's also some things about, like, some people treat the Avatar almost like it's, like, this weird MacGuffin thing, too, because, like, clearly Zuko's supposed to get the Avatar, but that's not really what his quest is. And then there's people who are like, oh, we gotta get the Avatar for their own reasons, for either, like, trying to save the world, trying to use him as a weapon, trying to maybe get him for value or something like that, the Silver Fire Nation. We always see him as an object a lot of the time, it's a new take. It's a new take, and it's one that I think that was really good that you pointed out, because it's like, I didn't even think about that. It's like, oh my gosh, your god disappeared, and after, like, so many years, how? at what point do you just kind of think, like, well, god's dead. Yes, we gotta do this on our own now. Can we talk about, like, comparing and contrasting the father figures of Zuko? You have, on one side, is the toxic masculinity of Fire Lord Ozai, and then on mm. the other side, you have healthy masculinity with Uncle Iroh. And mm. you see Uncle Iroh, and he's trying to reverse the damage done by Fire Lord Ozai, and also the Fire Nation culture of how they view masculinity. For those of you that don't know, toxic masculinity is um, a couple of things. It's suppressing emotions or masking distress, so like never showing your feelings. The second one is maintaining an appearance of hardness. And then the third one is violence as an indicator of power. I really hate how sometimes men... When they get frustrated, they don't know how to express their feelings. And so they just like hammer their fist down on the table. And that's like their way of telling the other person to shut up. And it's mostly done towards women. Like that's their way of expressing feelings through actions of violence. And so you see here, Zuko, his view on masculinity and power is like the lieutenant's not wrong. <laughs> But <laughs> Zuko reacts by challenging the lieutenant to fight. And Uncle Iroh steps in and approaches this intense situation with reason, kindness, and empathy. And these traits are, like in our society, are considered like quote-unquote feminine as opposed to masculine. Zuko's view on masculinity is challenged here. Because you have Uncle Iroh stepping in and being like, hey, you can't always solve your fights through violence. Like, sometimes kindness and empathy is important, especially when you are trying to earn the respect from your crew. Yeah, and I, I can agree with that, too, because Iroh is definitely a really interesting study on how... Because Iroh, when, once we go into his past, you can see some of his own toxic masculinity. He was also raised in the same culture that has promoted that value system for a long time. And it's it's interesting to see how like he changed after his son's death. And now he's kind of realizing the toxicity that's in the society, that's in everyone. And it's I'm happy that you know, that character exists to oppose that. Like, Iroh is shown to do a lot of the things that are opposite of toxic masculinity. He, he cries. He shows emotion and grief over his son. That's another thing that you don't, you know, it's not generally assumes like, no, we, we need to be strong men. We need to not show like that. But that's not healthy. <laughs> we have grief. And then I think also it's nice to see that Zuko goes down that Iroh path. He, he, he goes to a very healthy place because he does cry. We'll get to that again with Ozai because that scene with him and, and Zuko, um, Zuko never seems to stop having his emotion. And that's really important as a, as a character, in my opinion. Back to the episode. Katara finds Aang in a cave, and Aang apologizes for running away. Katara says that the fisherman was out of line, and Aang says, like, no, he was right. <laughs> like, I have to tell you something. And so Katara starts a campfire, and it's so cute. Like, Appa and Momo are there too, and everyone's just, like, cuddling around the campfire because it's story time. There's a sepia flashback. We're at the Southern Air Temple, and Aang is teaching the other airbending kids his airball technique. And it is in this moment that we learn that Aang invented the airball technique. As all the kids are trying the airball technique, the monks walk over and they tell Aang that they need to talk to him. They pull him aside to the ceremony room and they sit him down. And they're like, hey, I just want to tell you <laughs> that you're the avatar. And Aang's like, what? How do you, how do you know this? 
So the monks hand Aang some toys, and they tell him that these toys belong to the avatars in the past. There's a turtle, a propeller, a hog monkey, and one of those mini twisty toy drums. Aang says that he picked them because they looked fun. When I paused this in the Amazon credits, they named him as the Dower Monk, like that monk that always just kind of poops on Aang and Monk Yatsu. Oh. <laughs> and so yeah, I'm just going to refer to him as the Dower Monk. So the Dower Monk tells Aang that he chose these toys because they looked familiar to him. Monk Yatsu tells Aang that they usually wait until the Avatar is 16 to tell him, but he tells Aang that, quote, storm clouds are gathering and the main monk the one in the middle with the unibrow tells Aang that the monks feel like there's a war coming monkey Atsu tells Aang we need you Aang and that's the sound clip we hear in the beginning of the dream sequence mm -hmm. we cut to Prince Zuko's ship the lieutenant tells a co-worker how he's sick of taking orders from Prince Zuko and Uncle Iroh interrupts after after his ears were burning. He had a feeling. <laughs> he sits down next to the crew. And I like how they're like crowded around a fireplace too. We get a flashback. A younger Prince Zuko tries to enter the war chamber, but the guards won't let him. Uncle Iroh walks over and says, Don't be too bummed. You're not missing much. These meetings are boring anyways. Uh, here's where we get a great quote from Zuko. If I'm going to rule this nation one day, don't you think I need to start learning as much as I can? And oh man, what do you say to that? Uncle Iroh's like, oh, true, but <laughs> don't say anything. Just like don't talk the whole time. And guess what he does, Brian? <laughs> he, uh, oh gosh. So the war meeting takes place and the general is telling the whole room and Fire Lord Ozai of the Fire Nation's next attacks. He suggests that they send a new battalion to the front of the lines and use as bait, while another group ambushes them from behind. Zuko says that they can't sacrifice an entire division like that. Like, these soldiers love and defend our nation. How could you betray them? Like, he's not wrong, but... <laughs> we cut back to the cave. Katara's like, wait... The monks told you that you're basically the most powerful person in the entire planet and you weren't excited about it? Aang says that he didn't know what to feel after he found out because things started changing. What I really like is I love the lighting. This episode is so pretty in all these different places. And I love the lighting. I love the fire. There's so much about this episode that are drawing parallels to each other, like Zuko and Aang's responsibilities, their... They're having kind of responsibility that's thrust upon them. Although Zuko does actually ask for part of that responsibility in a way when he asked him, I want to go into the me room. If I ever rule this nation, I need to know what I need to do. Like, that's, like, really mature for someone his age. Like, oh, wow, you're kind of ready to try to take this on. That's very different from what we see from other princes. Like, if you want to make a person like Lion King with Simba or something like that, it's like, they just can't wait because they want to rule. They want to be the ones in charge. But, like, Zuko's like, I'm going to rule, but I'm going to have responsibility, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, sure, he's spoiled, but he also has this ambition to lead this nation. And it's not till we get a quote from Zuko later where he says, like, Uzula was born lucky. I was lucky to be born. And especially with just being the son of Fire Lord Ozai, too. Like, later we find out how that dynamic is and how Zuko's whole life is driven by the fact that he has never once had any sort of affection from his father. It's always been scolding. It's always been, like, demeaning. And that's definitely shaped him, too. And also is the reason why he's just so driven to prove himself. It's interesting with Zuko, because Zuko, we get introduced to him as being such a hard-ass, kind of a shithead, and, like... You know, I don't care about my men, and I don't. Blah, blah, blah. And then you look at him in the past, and you're like, oh my gosh, he could have been a really almost a great leader already. I mean, he already is in some ways. I mean, he is leading this battalion, and like he's not favorited, but he's not making some bad calls. He is making some decent ones. And it's like, imagine how far he could have been if he didn't just have that like toxic masculinity and stuff like that. Like, he already had an understanding of his people. He already had the understanding of, I need to have this responsibility. And he had a heart. 
and that, it's amazing and it's sad to say that like that goes so far in the fire nation just to even have that heart just to even care yeah because it's compared to everyone who's just like we just want power we just want control who cares about the men who cares about this who cares about that it's like okay <laughs> but zuko is like he stands up and it's like you know, there's foreshadowing there of like, because of course we know a bit about his bloodlines and everything. It's like, mm, there you go. You might see that bloodline uh, carrying over there, and that might be the reason why, because he got some good genes from somewhere. <laughs> Going back to the visual really quickly, because I, I forgot to say this, it's really interesting having the fire scenes and having that low lighting, but that little tinge of like yellowy red, and then going into the flashback with the sepia tone, and it doesn't feel like it's like a drastic, like, oh my gosh. Like, ugh, this is, like, two different colors. It feels like you don't even have to transition to the colors. Like, it feels very natural to go into. I really like that. Again, I really like the visuals in this one. And I think this is actually my favorite visual episode overall in Season 1. Because, to be honest, I don't actually like a lot of the visuals in Season 1. I think they're too bright and cheery. And I like the later seasons when we get kind of dark and dank. <laughs> yeah, I did notice that, too, where uh, Zuko's flashback... It's all red. It's all dark tones. It's mm -hmm. The sepia filter isn't even noticeable at this point. Like, kind of, it does, because there's, like, an angel filter where it looks dreamlike because, you know, like, the characters are recalling this memory. And Aang has it, too. Like, there's, like, a weird yellow-orange thing there, and I think that ties to, like, the, the monk's outfits, like, the monkey atsu and stuff like that. The lighting's definitely got a little white in there, and it's, like, it feels like you know, air airbenders. It feels like what they are and stuff like that. And I, I'm happy to see them like kind of tie those in. But then they also connect to the firelight, and it's just it's really smartly done. Very very well done on the animators. Yeah. Oh, there was one other thing about the toys I wanted to bring up. Yeah. I, I've heard it before. We're good with Korra stuff. So um, I did not even think about that until you mentioned each toy. I mean, each toy I first feel like must have some kind of representation to um the elements because obviously like. A turtle's water, the little, like, spinny toy with the little or repeller toys, like, air, you know, maybe the monkey represents fire, and then earth is, like, the drum. Maybe, like, the beating of it, of the earth and stuff. Yeah. But the fact that there's a toy that's also a turtle, and that episode when we find out about the Avatar's past in Korra, the turtles, oh my gosh, why did I not see that before? <laughs> it's a turtle! A turtle! <laughs> There's a couple of things that we've been mentioning, like, my mind's a little bit blown, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> holy moly. Yeah, this world is so rich, and they plant the seeds so early on, it's insane, like, the creators and writers. I feel like all TV shows strive to be this, but don't ever create a world as circular, I would say, as circular as this one. It's definitely a lot of callbacks. I assume that it's just, like, like an airbender thing or an air nomad thing where they do this experiment for all of the airbending avatars. Like that's so trippy where these monks, they present these toys to these kids to see if they're the next avatar. I think this is like the first glimpse of kind of like the tradition of the monks. Like there's more light shed with the whole airbender culture. It's really cool, like, all of my past airbender lives, like, we've always picked the same toys. That's really great how they could share that commonality with each other. I wondered that, too, about if the other nations had toys. Because then I'm like, are they going to variate and stuff? And you're right, this this really opens up airbending culture things. And there there's a couple... It makes me sad because I feel like airbending culture is not... I mean, it's because it's mostly extinct, so we don't get to see as much of it as we want to as compared to the other three nations. And there's something else later on about Gyatso being Aang's, being his guardian. Like, I really want to explore that too. Like, what does that mean? Like, how does airbending culture work when they're kids and stuff? Like, they are they adopting orphans? Are they... Does Aang have parents? Like, well, he must. Who are his parents? I don't think Gyatso is that. I imagine Aang being, like, as a kid, being, like, his grandson later on, like, Boomy a little bit. Like, eventually Aang kind of just, like, was mellowing out as he got older. You almost made the comparison of, like, the monks being, like, Hogwarts houses. And then I'm like, oh gosh, what about the poor kids who have to be in that one monk's 
what do we call him? The surly monk or something like that? The dower monk. The dower monk. Like, oh gosh, you had to be in the group of the dower monk. That sucks. I don't know. Maybe there's like another side to him that we don't see. Um, oh, side note, his voice sounded so familiar. I looked him up. He's Poe's dad from Kung Fu Panda. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know that. I was like, oh, that's why he sounds so familiar. He's also the, um, he's the Emperor's assistant in uh, Mulan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> him and um, uh, Mako, they're definitely prolific actors who are in like these kind of things. So like, as soon as I heard him, I was like, he's in there. Oh, um, there's a parallel of like, they're both in meetings. Aang has a meeting with the other monks to discuss his destiny and stuff of that. Meanwhile, Zuko is in that parallel of the meeting, the war room, about like how we're going to plan the war and everything. And again, it's this is why I always like the Zuko and Aang relationship a whole lot, is because of the fact that it's like, you guys have so much in common, and it's so sad that it's going to take you so long to realize that. It's like, you guys are having responsibilities thrust on you in both cases. Like, these people who are much older, who don't really understand you, are putting that on you. And it's like, come on. I think the only one who does understand is Gyatso, at the very least. And, well, no, I'm sorry, take that back. Gyatso and Iroh. Because Roku gives him advice and stuff. But I think Yatso is the definite one. The definite one who probably helped Aang figure that stuff out. And it's sad when you see Aang no longer have that necessarily. As opposed to Zuko who definitely has that. Like Aang doesn't have his ladder and support anymore with Yatso being gone. Zuko gets it back with Iroh. Yeah. But also I feel like the dour monk... He's not wrong, even though he comes off as unlikable. Like, if Avatar Roku was there, he would definitely be telling Aang the same thing. Like, yo, like, you gotta step up. No one else can do it but you. Like, I know you're a kid, but right now we have to sacrifice your childhood for the good of mankind. When you say that to a kid, like, of course, that's hard to process. No one blames Aang for doing what he did. It's just unfortunate that the consequences of that is so horrible. There's this really fine line in, in the entire series of childhood and adulthood and where they have to make the decisions. Like, we, we are seeing children during wartime. And during wartime, children are asked to grow far, far quicker than they need to. It's interesting to see how that's always hearkening back. Like, maybe near the end we start to lose that a bit, but that's also because of the fact that they're starting to mature now, and they're also, you know, they're starting to age, they're starting to get older, so, like, childhood can be kind of naturally left behind. But it is sad that they also kind of get their childhoods taken away from them, and that's not fair. And I agree, I think Roku would still be telling him responsibility and stuff like that, but I don't ever think that Gyatso's wrong about that. Like, you still need a little of your, your youth and everything. And then I think there, there's an interesting point in the past episode where, like, Roku says he's already kind of ready in some ways, and I almost wonder if maybe even, like, his immaturity almost makes him ready. Like, skill-wise, he's not ready. But maybe something about his immaturity and his Aang's purity is what is going to get him through this. And that's probably maybe a quality maybe Roku didn't have. And maybe that's something he sees in him. Like, that's good that you have it. <laughs> because I messed up when I tried to take it maybe too seriously. Yeah. Hello, editing Marilyn here. There was so much we had to cover on this episode, so I had to split this episode into two. Sorry! When you're flying in the sky On a bison way up high With your friends around you And a little Lima too On a journey across the sea Soaring peacefully Drinking cactus juice all day Till we hallucinate Yip, yip Yip, yip